Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Feedback Friday, where we will take your calls. And today's discussion is about Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signing that final executive order this week, extending the state's COVID-19 public health emergency, but it will actually end July 1st at 12 a.m. Here's your question. Is this move too soon? And especially as the Delta variant is projected to become the dominant coronavirus, we'll talk all about it. Your number, 404-870-0135. Again, 404-870-0135. Feedback Friday is just ahead, and our own WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead will join me. But first this, and it's some breaking news as it relates to Governor Brian Kemp. The U.S. Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia, as you just heard on NPR, over changes to the state's voting laws. Now, here's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland from from a press conference held earlier today. Today, the Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Attorney General Garland went on to say the department is closely following elections and voting legislation in other states and vowed to act if they believe there is a violation of federal law. Joining me now for reaction is Andrea Young, executive director for the ACLU of Georgia. Director Young, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for taking the time to talk about these important issues. Well, let's begin here with your reaction to the DOJ and that lawsuit against Georgia. Well, I I welcome it, Rose. Of course, as you know, the ACLU has already uh, filed suit against the uh, against the Georgia law, SB 202. Uh, If we had uh, preclearance under the Voting Rights Act, we would have filed an objection with the U.S. Justice Department. So it's entirely appropriate uh, for the Justice Department to be weighing in on this issue. You heard the AG mention Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. For folks who may not know, let's take a look at this. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 reads as follows. Prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in one of the language minority groups identified in Section 4 of the Act. Now, for some that may say, well, if this is already, you know, federal law, how will the DOJ, how do they plan to then prove that this is indeed a violation? I know you're not representing the DOJ, but what do you suspect they will try to prove here to the courts? Well, you know, Rose, during uh, the legislative session, the ACLU and uh, other uh, civil rights, civil liberties organizations work very hard to make a record. Uh, we went to every hearing 
we put on the record how we saw this was going to make it more difficult for people of color to vote, black and brown people, Asian Americans, uh, younger people, lower income people. So we made a very good record uh, on this. And nevertheless, um, you know, we saw uh, 202, you know, signed, uh, you know, by the governor. Um, so we've made a very good record. Uh, the data are there. Uh, the numbers are there, uh, and they, you know, they have, we have an excellent case. They have an excellent case. It's always great to be in federal court with the Department of Justice on your side. But could the challenge also be that we have not seen any discrimination because we haven't had a, a true election cycle to go back and point to and say, here are some examples. Might that be an issue here? So we have absolute, you know, changes. For example, um, how disproportionately uh, the 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 limitation on drop boxes, for example, how that disproportionately impacts African Americans, particularly mm -hmm. uh, in big counties like DeKalb and Fulton, because they restricted the number of drop boxes. Uh, the way that they uh, reduce the time to request an absentee ballot, the way we know 200,000 Georgia voters um, that voted by mail don't have a photo ID, which has never been required to vote by mail in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have specific examples. These examples are on the record. The data, you know, um, there's excellent data on the Georgia election. As you know, 5 million Georgians voted and that vote they were counted and recounted and the GBI did an audit. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of data to substantiate um, these claims. Governor Brian Kemp has issued a statement within an hour that reads in part, quote, this lawsuit is born out of the lies and misinformation the Biden administration has pushed, pushed against Georgia's Election Integrity Act from the start. Kemp goes on to say, quote, Joe Biden, Stacey Abrams and their allies tried to force an unconstitutional elections power grab through Congress and failed. Now they are weaponizing the U.S. Department of Justice to carry out their far-left agenda that undermines election integrity and empowers federal government's overreach in our democracy. Close quote. Director Young, a reaction to Governor Kemp's response? Well, well, it's deeply disappointing. You know, SB 202 uh, actually makes it no longer uh, feasible to vote in Georgia the way the governor himself voted. The governor himself voted late uh, and went to an outdoor drop box. And there's photos of that. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's good enough for him, it worked for him, it's good enough for every Georgian. Uh, also, you know, we saw that uh, in, in 2020, 5 million Georgians voted. So the majority of, vote, of Georgians voted for Joe Biden, for Raphael Warnock, for, uh, for, for, for um, John Ossoff. Um, so this is a democracy, you know, and this is what happens in elections matter in a democracy. Uh, and this is about expanding the right to vote and maintaining it for every Georgian, regardless of party. Um, it is this is not, uh, you know, and so I think it's, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the, you know, the people telling lies about the Georgia election, Rudolph Giuliani just lost his law license mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, because he came to Georgia and sat in the Capitol and told lies about the Georgia election. Something else that Attorney General Merrick mentioned was the DOJ providing guidance regarding the upcoming redistricting cycle, which will, of course, redraw those voting maps. And for the first time, he mentioned states like Georgia will not need the former 
preclearance mandate, which was once a provision in the Voting Rights Act, you see that also as being problematic. It's very problematic. I'm very concerned. We've not had redistricting in Georgia without preclearance since 1960. Uh, as you know, uh, in 1970, uh, my dad was drawn out of the 5th Congressional District, and we used the preclearance provision. Actually, he went to the ACLU of Georgia. And with the uh, preclearance provision, uh, the lines were redrawn. So this is a this has been a critical tool, and it's deeply we we want the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. We need the John Lewis Act. Preclearance was approved by Ronald Reagan, by George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. This is not a partisan issue. It is a democracy issue. And for folks that don't know, your dad, former Atlanta mayor and ambassador Andrew Young, filing Director Young, Governor Kemp feels confident that changes to the state's voting laws will stand up. However, your optimism is to counter that. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think that, uh, as I said, the, the, the evidence is there um, that this has a very negative effect on uh, voting rights in the state of Georgia. Nevertheless, um, we, will, we are continuing to work uh, to make sure that every Georgian knows their rights, knows how to vote, knows how to access the ballot in our state and, and to protect our democracy. Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. Coming up next, Feedback Friday and more about COVID-19. Sam Whitehead joins me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott, and we should note that Governor Brian Kemp is expected to hold a press conference today at 4 p.m. to talk about the lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice. Let's go back a, a little bit in time. Speaking of Governor Brian Kemp, the date was March 14th, 2020. As of this morning, there are now 64 cases of COVID-19 in Georgia, which is our largest increase in over a 24-hour period to date. A first in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp then declaring a public health state of emergency through executive order. This declaration will greatly assist health and emergency management officials across Georgia by deploying all available resources for mitigation and treatment of COVID-19. If necessary, unlike other states of emergency, this declaration will allow the Department of Public Health to direct specific health care action in extraordinary circumstances. That was then, and Georgia, like every state in the nation, issued their own guidelines regarding what to do and how to do with the coronavirus. Well, more than a year later, that executive order ends next week, 
And perhaps the timing is questionable. This as the spread of the new coronavirus Delta variant is projected to become the dominant virus in the nation. Here's a question. Is this move too soon? Let's talk about it, shall we? We'll take your calls for Feedback Friday, 404-870-0135. Again, 404-870-0135. Joining me again, I believe he may just be one of two guests to be a repeat broadcast buddy as our director of radio, John Haas, calls you, you guys. WAB Health Reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, glad to have you back. Hey, Rose. Good to be here in person today. Wow, Sam, listening to the segments of Governor Kemp's Declaration of Public Health, State of Emergency, wow, at that time we had 60 cases in Georgia. Seems like a long time ago, but at the same time, it doesn't. You know, uh, let's remind folks what this executive order was originally intended to do. Yeah, I mean, the the governor laid out um, an important part of it there, which I don't think was actually ever used. The fact that this is not just a normal state of emergency. This is a public health state of emergency that did give our Department of Public Health, as he said, kind of power to issue rules under extraordinary circumstances, Mm -hmm. uh, quarantine rules, for example. Um, These are things that, from my recollection, DPH encouraged people to do. I don't know if they went as far as mandating people Mm -hmm. do things like that. So that was certainly a part of this executive order, but it also did a lot of other things. So like the kind of emergency declaration we might see in, say, a weather emergency, it uh, rolled back some rules for transportation, right? Mm-hmm. So truckers can drive longer hours, bring heavier loads in. The idea is that, you know, you might need more material assets during an emergency. Um, but this also did a lot of other things. It reduced licensing barriers for healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Um, later on in the pandemic, it was expanded a little bit to allow more people to give vaccinations. Um, it rolled back um, some really kind of weedy regulations about where healthcare, uh, where healthcare uh, facilities can open in the state. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then something we just heard in this last NPR newscast, because Georgia had this state of emergency, it opened up expanded benefits for low-income Georgians, specifically mm-hmm. SNAP food stamp benefits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we are looking towards next week, the governor has said the state of emergency is going to, or the emergency declaration rather, is going to expire on July 1. His office says they're going to issue another emergency declaration that's not specifically public health focused. Mm -hmm. So some of these provisions might carry over into that. We just don't quite know what will make it over at this point. Were you surprised, though, given that we still have this new emerging variant, the Delta, you know, before that was the Alpha, now it's the Delta variant. Was this surprising to you? You know, I think it's important to put into context that other states are doing similar things. It was just this week that the state of New York rolled back its uh, public health state of emergency. So, you know, Georgia, like every other state, is trying to navigate this and kind of taking things at their own pace. Certainly, the Delta variant is concerning. It's concerning to the nation's top public health officials. Dr. Tony Fauci said this week that this is the one thing that could really, you know, set our progress that we've made in the pandemic back, this this new, more transmissible variant. But I also think it's important to look at the way that cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are down here in Georgia and across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we are... You know, we're not totally back to where things were in early March, mm-hmm. um, but at least looking at the national picture, we're getting closer and closer um, to kind of where things were at the start of the pandemic. So is it surprising? I, you know, I think it's it's hard to say. Um, but, you know, my understanding is that when officials make these decisions, they're, they're looking at a bunch of different variables. It's not just one thing. And we should note that New York also has 
ended its state of emergency as well. The number 404-870-0135. Again, 404-870-0135. Do you think maybe the state of Georgia just wait and see how we get through the summer before maybe ending a public state health of emergency? Let's talk to Aruna. Aruna, thank you for taking the time. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? It's a pleasure to speak to you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. You're calling from Tucker. Uh, I am. I'm actually on the road right now coming back from Macon, but I'm a healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. I work with people who get injured on the job. And to me, it has been, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to remove the restrictions. Uh, I see on a daily basis, Georgia is less than 40% vaccinated. I have no clue who's got the vaccine, who doesn't have the vaccine. I find that bars and restaurants and every malls are packed to capacity. And the Delta variant has been, we've been warned against the Delta variant by Dr. Fauci. And I come from India, so India has been really struggling mm. with this variant. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm scratching my head. We are, Georgia is the base for CDC. And I don't know where this governor gets his opinions and his recommendations from, but he remains irresponsible in my humble opinion. All right, Aruna, thank you so much. And very angry about it because of the population that I serve are highly immunocompressant patients and they are very vulnerable. Majority of them are Hispanic. They're illegal. They don't even know if they can go get the vaccine. Hmm. And I've been educating them to go get the vaccine. Well, Runa, thank you. And thank you to all the healthcare professionals who've been working through yes, all ma'am. of this. Thank you so much. 404-870-0135. That's your number, 404-870-0135. As we talk about Georgia getting through these next few months, we got the Delta variant is here. Is it too soon? Let's talk to Roy from Dunwoody. Roy, thanks for taking the time. Hey there, Rose. Hey. Oh, oh. Um, I'd just like to contribute to the conversation that, you know, at this point in time, anyone who wants a vaccine, has the ability to walk up to hundreds of locations and get it. Mm -hmm. And those that have chosen not to take it are most likely not concerned about getting the virus. So, you know, at this point, um, we shouldn't really be looking backwards to uh, become fearful again of a a new variant of the virus spreading. Mm -hmm. The the virus is going to mutate for years to come, and mm-hmm. if we let every new variant uh, make us fearful, um, it's it's going to be a weak way to uh, move forward. Um, we need to show strength, and at this point, realize that we're in a great position, and those who want the vaccine have no reason why they couldn't get it, at least in the United States, which is a great blessing. Mm-hmm. And those who don't want the vaccine don't have to worry. I mean, uh, you know, they're they're choosing to take their health into their own hands, and that's their decision. Um, so at this point, you know, we really need to uh, support reopening uh, actions because he's been a great leader uh, throughout the pandemic, given the very challenging circumstances, um, and has ultimately resulted in Georgia being one of the fastest states to reopen. All right, Roy, thank you so much for your comment. I really appreciate it. You know, Sam, Roy brought up some points. He's saying, look, the vaccine is available to anyone who wants it. Um, You've obviously been covering this. Before I let you answer that, let's hear what Dr. Anthony Fauci just recently said about the Delta variant. 
Similar to the situation in the UK, the Delta variant is currently the greatest threat in the US to our attempt to eliminate COVID-19. Good news, our vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. Conclusion, we have the tools, so let's use them and crush the outbreak. Sam, Dr. Fauci makes some very valid points. I think Roy made a valid point to saying, look, the, the vaccines are here, folks. So with these different variants, they believe you all can be protected. But comment on what Roy had to say there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's there's a lot to unpack. And, and it's not like there's a simple answer necessarily. I mean, certainly if we look at Georgia and the country as a whole, the U.S. does have enough vaccine doses for people. I, I don't know if it's entirely true that everyone who you know, wants a vaccine necessarily can easily get them. Um, I was out at the uh, Marta's uh, Laredo bus garage yesterday out Mm -hmm. in Decatur, and, you know, they're offering uh, this week vaccinations on site for, you know, their essential workers, people who clean buses, people who work weird shifts, who can't necessarily find the time or maybe the the, the childcare to go get a shot. Certainly the Biden administration has taken a lot of steps to try to reduce those barriers, but, but I also think it's, you know, it, it is maybe we, we do need to understand that there are still access barriers out there for people. Well, we, let's take that a little bit further for our listeners. And by the way, folks, your number 404-870-0135. Again, 404-870-0135. Or the old fashioned way, you can email me, rose at WABE.org or hit me up on Twitter. If you, or even Sam. I'm at WABE Rose Scott. And Sam, you are? I'm at S. Claude Whitehead, C-L-A-U-D. And be kind to us when you hit us up on social media. Uh, those barriers, Sam, let's take that a little bit further for our, our listeners as our phone lines are ringing here. Uh, what are, Someone will say, what barriers, uh, Sam Whitehead, are you talking about that still exist for folks in getting the vaccine? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's hard to think about other people's realities sometimes, right? Like, think about, you know, an individual who is maybe working a few jobs. There may be a single parent. They have to find time off from work. They have to find child care. I mean, the Biden administration, for example, has partnered with daycares where, say, if you are a person in that situation, you can go to, you know, one of these chain daycare centers and and drop off your child. If you don't have a relationship with that daycare center, I I think that is still going to be a potential barrier for you. Right. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's important to understand. And I think this is something that health officials understand is that, you know, we are in a place where. A lot of the decisions um, and conversations that are going to have to happen um, for people to be convinced who are maybe on the fence, those are one-on-one conversations. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation that someone's going to have to have with their doctor or their family member. You know, someone who's not going to drive to a mass vaccination site, many of which are are closing down at this point. And so, you know, I think in across the country that the the pace has slowed down. But I I think that to the the tape that you played from Dr. Anthony Fauci, you know, Georgia's vaccination rates do still trail Mm -hmm. that of many, many, many states. Have we reached 40 percent yet? Um, So I'm checking the numbers now. The Department of Public Health says 42 percent of the population, so this is everybody who is eligible for a vaccine, Mm -hmm. um, has received one dose. 37 percent are fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I mean, by by comparison, there are states in the Northeast, Vermont, I think is leading the charge. Some 80 percent of the Mm -hmm. population has one shot. Um, And there are a bunch of other states that have crossed that 70 percent threshold. And so, you know, in conversations that I've had with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who's the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, what she has said is, you know, this is kind of a refrain. The virus is an opportunist. It's going to go into communities where there is less vaccination coverage. And I think there is 
you know, it's it's great to say on one hand, well, people who don't want the vaccine are putting themselves at risk. But, you know, every time this virus infects someone else, it's like it's pulling a genetic slot mm-hmm. machine. And maybe that's the infection that's going to, you know, give it a mutation that's going to help it evade our uh, vaccines. Right. So it's it's not just as simple as saying, well, you know, everyone who wants it, everyone who wants it can get it. And it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter if they don't. Uh, in a conversation I recently had with the secretary of Veterans Affairs, uh, Dennis McDonough, who talked about veterans, their caregivers, their spouses, their kids, anyone that lives in the house with them, they can all go to their local VA clinic and also get that shot. So some initiatives that are out there. So right, good point there, Sam. 404-870-0135. Let's go out to Lawrenceville and let's talk to Luke. Luke, thanks for taking the time. Hi. Hey. Is this Ms. Rose Scott? Every day. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> I'm fine. How you doing? I'm doing well. I was just calling a comment about the session that's currently on. Um, I'm a healthcare worker myself, live in Lawrenceville. Um, I am. I would actually applaud the work that the CDC as well as the Biden administration has been doing to get the vaccine rolled out. However, I'm still very cautious about the rollback that several states are taking into consideration, uh, with the fact that there's still an uptake of the incidences of this virus within the hospital. I know a lot of people are very you know, reserved about getting the vaccine, but it's mm-hmm. proven to be effective. So I'm just worried about people not wanting to get it. Mm-hmm. At the height of the pandemic, a lot of people wanted, were clamoring to get this vaccine. And now that it's out, a lot of people are holding back about getting it. So what do you do? Because this is putting a lot of burden on the healthcare workers, taking care of the patients still coming into the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't know. I don't want to be mean or uh, put it out in such a way to say people that get infected if you don't get the vaccine should have been treated. No, that's the only way to go because when a Hippocratic oath was taken, it, it says do no harm. Mm-hmm. I'm just concerned for those that do not want to take the vaccine and still are not putting measures in place to keep themselves safe. Well, thank you, Luke. And also, again, thank you for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing during this pandemic. And to be fair, we want to reiterate for our listeners, Sam and Dr. Bennett's coming on in just a minute, that folks should know that we don't know what could be next in this executive order. Uh, Governor Kemp could reissue some of the same guidance. We just don't know. But in his in the original executive order, he made a statement saying that, you know, he felt like Georgia had turned a corner here. So if that's an indication, we might, it's possible, might see some of these these guidances that once were a little bit one might consider restricted go away. Well, and I think it's important to know here that, um, you know, with this public health state of emergency, that this is really kind of a, a weedy kind of uh, procedural thing that's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's something that does allow um, a lot of the kind of exemptions to normal order mm-hmm. that we discussed earlier in the conversation. And so, you know, I'm interested to see um, you know, as the governor's office, I'm sure they're having conversations with, you know, healthcare uh, facilities. Um, you know, hospitals have a very uh, strong voice in this state. Um, and so it's in, I'm curious to see which of these provisions, especially the ones that make it easier for healthcare workers to respond to this pandemic, continue in future executive orders. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those things carry over. And, you know, I always enjoy hearing from our, our healthcare workers. Let's go to Dr. Ben calling from Midtown. Dr. Bennett, thanks for taking the time. No problem. Your, your question or comment, sir, about all of this. Me. You with me, Dr. Bennett? 
We'll come back to Dr. Ben and see if we can get him. Let's go to Chloe, who's calling from Sharpsburg. Chloe, thanks for taking the time. Okay, very good. I'll call you back, Charles. <laughs> Chloe, uh, sorry. Yes, tell, yes, tell Charles, sorry. don't be interrupting the Rose Scott show. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. This is, this is Chloe. <laughs> hey, Chloe, thanks for taking the time. Yes, ma'am. Listen, I just wanted to weigh in and say that uh, as a solid cell uh, transplant recipient, it is, uh, you know, it is an issue where um, it's not that some people don't want to get it. A letter was sent out to me from Emory stating that, yes, uh, you know, we don't know the uh, side effect of uh, tra- uh, of this vaccine if you are a transplant recipient. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that maybe by saying that you could get somebody to speak on that topic uh, 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 in reference to solid cell uh, transplant recipients and the vaccine. Are they, is it compatible? Mm-hmm. And um, some statistics on that because, you know, the vaccine is so new and we don't know long term how this can affect someone who is a transplant recipient. All right. I think that's a, a, a good suggestion. We will definitely get on that. Thank you so much, Chloe. Hang in there, okay? Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Let's go out to Lawrenceville and speak with Frederick. No, but in, his, in the original executive order, you made it. Frederick, you with me? Turn your radio down. Hey, Frederick, thanks for taking the time. Yes. So what do you want to make of all this? Hey, Frederick. Oh, thank you. I love your show. Um, I'm just concerned. Uh, I've talked to a lot of, uh, I'm in a community where I see a lot of illegal migrants. And it seems to me that we are forgetting about those people. Um, and these are the same people that work in our grocery stores that we can't become in contact with all the time. And it seems to me um, we have ignored that. Um, they have a huge fear of this virus, especially with this new Delta that's coming up. Um but I don't see what the state of Georgia or anywhere else is not discussing how we take care of those people at all. And I feel like the spread can actually come to that group, to the rest of us. Um, so I just want to know what the government is doing about that, um, what the United States is doing about that, because I feel like it's a very big fear for them, mm-hmm. and we are not contributing to help assisting them in any way. Okay. All right, Frederick, thanks you so much for that. And we should note, Sam, that your... Resident status is not questioned when you go to get the vaccine. And part of the push that we saw, Sam, when the vaccination rollout, probably in the middle of this, was more states looking to community partnerships Mm. to help focus on communities of color, rural communities. And, And the premise behind that was that if you have more folks who are in the community who people trust who look like them, Mm -hmm. as that's how they put it, that that would help increase that that vaccination uh, rate here in Georgia. What are we hearing? Are we still, is it still some barriers in trying to reach specific communities? I mean, I I think the thing, um, you know, we just had that just uh, caller and shout out to Lawrenceville, just where I grew up, Um, (laughs) you know, kind of question what what the governor and and kind of state level officials are doing. You know, it it seems like those efforts are really happening, um, not in a really centralized way. You know, we've seen over the course of the pandemic, the way that, you know, our governor has really not opted for a top-down approach in the way a lot of other states have. Um, You know, if we want to think back to last summer, 
um, as everyone was concerned about a summer surge, his mm -hmm. message was, well, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Not we're going to make you do the right thing, but you should take that personal responsibility to do it. Um, and that really seems to be the approach uh, when it comes to vaccination as well. And, 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 that, and that's why I think that, you know, this decision to let the public health state of emergency expire mm -hmm. um, matters in kind of a symbolic way because it's not like this work is going to stop, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like community groups that are trying to say, you know, reach communities of color, reach rural communities are going to stop trying to get people vaccinated. But mm -hmm. it, it kind of sends a message that the emergency is over when in a lot of ways and that it's we're all not. fine. Right. Well, sure. And I, I, I think that unless, you know, that is part of the communication, which I, I certainly haven't seen or heard a lot of that, mm -hmm. I think that's potentially the, the common perception. Well, we're still in a pandemic. Yes. And I'm not sure what the criteria that the World Health Organization uses to say, OK, the pandemic is over. This could be going on for the next two or three years. No one knows. Uh, some will say, well, we should be following, you know, global and, and federal guidance and then others say well no local control let the states mm. let them have the ability to do this but therein as you and i both know therein lies a problem sometimes because you get into issues of disparity and, 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 and disparities and inequities and something we've all dealt with before yeah and you know I, I think it is important to keep in mind that this pandemic in, in some ways is only just getting started in some parts of the world right well you there, heard what they said about in Africa yeah and I've, I've I've heard similar statistics you know someone I talked with on the podcast not too long ago not too long ago tell, told me in this these numbers are maybe a few weeks old um, that you know in the on the continent of Africa there are two vaccine doses for every 100 people right which is it's just an astounding number, yeah. um, especially if we consider, you know, that there are enough doses for everyone here in the in the U.S. And so, you know, it is important to keep in mind that this is still a big global problem. And, and you know, the U.S. is not an island, right? The mm -hmm. way our world is interconnected, someone can any any country in the world can hop on a plane and get here. And so if hopefully we've learned over the course of the pandemic that we're not alone here. And folks, don't think that Sam and I are just making up stuff because as journalists, we deal in facts. So keep this in mind. Here in the U.S., we're talking about maybe 47 percent of the population fully vaccinated. In the U.K., about 47 percent. Now, pay attention to this. In India, 3.8 percent. In Brazil, 11.7 percent. And we're talking about of the population being fully vaccinated. So that in itself, I think, can, can lend for those that think that we're just making up stuff. Because we don't do that on this show, do we, Sam? No, we don't. 404-870-0135. <laughs> that is your number as we're talking about what's next for Georgia. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp will possibly issue some new something new with an executive order. We know one is going to expire on July 1st. We're not sure. Could it totally end the public state health emergency? We just don't know. Let's check back in with Dr. Bennett calling from Midtown. Dr. Bennett, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, sir, for that mix-up. That's okay. It happens. Uh, okay. okay. But our goal as the state of Georgia, as a country, is to get to herd immunity, which means having at least 70% of the population immune. Notice I said uh, immunized, not vaccinated. And let me explain this. Herd immunity has two components. There's vaccine-mediated immunity, and there's also natural immunity for those who have been previously infected with, uh, with COVID. Mm -hmm. I'm a family physician in Noonan, and I screen patients who've had prior COVID um, infection, and I'm finding that six, eight, ten months later, their antibody levels are still high enough to make them immune. So basically, all we see on television are vaccinated, vaccinated, vaccinated numbers, 
but really we should look at vaccinated individuals and add those with natural immunity to see how close we really are as a state and as a nation to get to that 70 percent mark. Dr. Bennett, let me ask you this, because in Sam and I have had this conversation before on this program. We used to, early on, we all, all we heard was, we got to reach this herd immunity. We got to reach this herd immunity. And then we sort of, the messaging sort of backed off of that. Well, I think they were seeing that they could not get everyone vaccinated because mm-hmm. we're running up against a problem with vaccination medically in two groups. There's a vaccine-hesitant group and there's, there's a vaccine-resistant group. Mm-hmm. And those in the hesitant group are those who are a little bit afraid of the vaccine. They need a little bit more data. They need more reassurance. That group were, were probably well down the road to getting them immunized. But the mm-hmm. vaccine resistant, those are the ones that have set notions about the vaccine, socialize with others who have the same notions, work with them. And they're a little bit harder group to get to. And the current plan of going to those communities, to churches, to community centers, will not work within that community, but the entire community has one mindset. Mm. What I find has been work with my practice, though, is that those who are vaccine-resistant, if I'm able to draw their antibody levels, they may have had previous COVID infections. And I can show them that they, that they are immune, and they can, it, gives, it buys me a little bit more time to get them vaccinated down the road. If they come back negative, then we can have a conversation there by getting vaccinated, and they get the opportunity to be vaccinated in the office in a private set, setting, and not at a community center, which they do not want to go to. Hmm. Sam, what do you make of what Dr. Bennett is saying? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's certainly true, that, you know, immunity comes in a bunch of different forms, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's you can get vaccinated, you can get uh, natural infection. I, I think that the, the challenge there is actually putting a number on to what percentage of population mm-hmm. has gotten some kind of immunity through natural infection, right? This is a, an infection where up to a quarter of people are asymptomatic, so you could have had it and not even known. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the converse of that, what that makes me think about is that, you know, there are really two options for people. Um, you can get a vaccine, which will, in general, you know, protect you uh, from a severe outcome from a coronavirus infection, or you can get naturally infected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do that with kids and chickenpox, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we know that the risks of actually getting that natural infection for, for nearly everybody are, are much higher um, than the risks that come with with, with vaccinations. So I, t- I talked with someone this week that said it's it's you really have a choice. It's one or the other. One is going to happen. You're either going to mm. get it or you're going to get vaccinated. Wow. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, how are you all doing out there in Noonan? It's, it's a little bit difficult, <laughs> to yeah. be honest with you. I think all those who uh, want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated, and those who are resistant, we're still working with them. But let me say that the, the, the federal government made a, a decision to just look at those who are immunized and not have much of a system in place for those with natural immunity. Mm-hmm. And the cutoff point for those with um, antibody levels for those with natural immunity is 0.8. And my average naturally uh, infected patient is averaging somewhere about 25. So they're well above that level. And the federal government needs to spend more time having those individuals go to their doctors so we can actually get those numbers as well. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Before I go to Rajin from Alpharetta, I want to remind you that this is Closer Look and this is our Feedback Friday. Today's discussion as we talk about, is it too soon to possibly end the state's public health emergency? Your number is 404-870-0135. Again, 404-870-0135. Closer Look, we're back in a moment after this.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. And today I'm joined by our WABE health reporter, Sam Whitehead, who also hosts the very, very popular Did You Wash Your Hands podcast. And today on Feedback Friday, as we're talking about Georgia moving forward, and what are your thoughts in terms of if, if Governor Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp does indeed in the state of emergency public health emergency 404-870-0135. Let's go to Rajin. I hope I said that correctly. Who's in Alpharetta? Thanks for taking the time. You with me? Yeah, I'm Rajin. Oh, Rajin. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? What do you think about uh, possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly that uh, the state could end its public health emergency re- regarding COVID-19? Too soon? Should we wait a few months? What do you think? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm a musician. And uh, first of all, let me congratulate on this wonderful program. It's really not only uh, useful to thousands of people, but it's an educational kind of program and the round, ground reality it's been highlighted. And having said that, uh, let me just uh, narrate what happened last week mm-hmm. uh, when I met a f- uh, fellow musician mm-hmm. in downtown. We thought of uh, restarting our band, but he's not vaccinated. So I asked him, how come you are not vaccinated? So mm-hmm. he, he took this uh, uh, remark. He made this remark saying uh, his leader, a particular person, I am a great follower of this particular leader, and uh, I don't want to get back. So I said, it's mm. foolish. This particular leader is, and his family is the first one to get vaccinated. Hmm. So this is, perhaps it's, it's time we all request that particular leader to make a public statement saying that everyone should get vaccinated or else he is going to lose his World Bank. Let me ask you this. Uh, this leader, and, you, and if you don't want to mention the name, were we talking about a political leader, a faith leader, or a, a yeah, community uh, leader? Well, I can say it's former president. Trump. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, let me ask you this. Um, as a physician, in, how, how often are you trying to convince folks that the vaccine is important and that they should get it? And, and are, you, are you at a point where you feel like maybe there's isn't, what more can you say, doctor? I think we lost him. Uh, Sam, what do you make of that in terms of, you know, people, whether it's a faith leader, politicians, whomever, you know, your local public radio host, well, maybe not your public radio host, because we're supposed to be neutral, but saying, you know, y'all get the vaccine. I mean, there's there's been some great polling um, from the folks at the Kaiser Family Foundation, and um, you can hear me talk about on uh, that on my podcast this week. Uh, that that really says that political leaders are not who people want to hear from mm. um, when it comes to you know messengers that are trusted about you know COVID nineteen vaccination. Uh, who they do trust are their friends and family, um, healthcare providers, and uh, public health leaders and organizations like the CDC. And so. You know, I, I do think it is 
easy to criticize, um, you know, political leaders for mm-hmm. not being more vocal champions of uh, vaccination. Um, but I also understand that there is prudence in not doing so. Um, mm-hmm. And that's backed up by this by this polling. You know, it's interesting, Sam, because I'm going to go back to this from a global standpoint and looking at, you know, some of the nations and Based on what we've been able to come with our research, only one nation is over 50 percent. And right now it's showing that they're at 56 percent. And that's Israel. Yeah, Israel was one of the real early leaders um, in in the, the vaccine campaign. If people remember a lot of the, the coverage that you know happened earlier in the year as the vaccines were rolling out. Um, I mean, it, Israel's a very different country. Mm-hmm. My understanding is they have a much more centralized and robust uh, public health system. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a much smaller country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, all of those are certainly factors. But, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is no slouch. I'm looking at the numbers here from CDC. Um, you know, 53% of um, the total population is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're about a week or so out from the 4th of July when the president had, you know, hoped that uh, 70% of all adults, so 18 and older, um, would have started vaccination. So at least one shot. Um, we're going to miss, it looks like, that 70% of all adults over 18. Um, but, you know, all adults over 40 have hit that 70% mark. I think it's it's all adults over 27 is how they sliced and diced the numbers. Mm-hmm. So still a really remarkable feat when you consider that, you know, we've had only about seven months or so uh, to try to get shots into arms. Well, to be at 46% when your goal was 70%, which was a very, very high, lofty goal, to be fair, that is that is, is not bad when you look at the rest of the, the nations around the world. 404-870-0135. You still have time to make your comment or question. 404-870-0135 as we talk about what's next for Georgia, particularly with these next few months, if Governor Brian Kemp does indeed end the public state health of emergency. Sam, what are you going to be following in these next couple of weeks here? Well, I mean, I think the thing that that makes me think, Rose, what comes next is, you know, the governor says he's already talking about it. Um, at a press event he did last week with uh, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, the head of our Department of Public Health, um, he said that, you know, his office is already talking about the fall, talking about later this summer when kids go back to school as more and more people get back to work. Um, and the possibility that we could see small, localized kind of flare-ups of infection. Um, so th- that was striking to me that his office seems to be aware that, you know, the risk is not completely gone. I, I think we're entering into a phase where we're going to kind of figure out what kind of the background level of infection is that we're mm-hmm. OK with. Right. CDC director uh, Rochelle Walensky uh, has told me that because these vaccines are so effective, she's not happy with any kind of background rate of infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would think that, you know, this coronavirus is going to be with us for a while and people are going to keep getting sick. It's just a question of, you know, how many and how bad it gets again. And Debbie via email says, hi, Rose, for you or Sam, what is the cost to Georgia's health care system, private insurance or Medicaid of a person who falls ill with COVID and requires hospitalization? Of course, Sam, you've been following this too. I look at your expression. You were waiting for this question, weren't you, Sam? No, that's a that's a great question and one I don't necessarily know the answer yeah. to. Um, but, you know, I, I do think uh, that Debbie... That is a a very important question about kind of the shared impact um, that, you know, sickness has on all of us. Right. 
you know, Medicaid, the state federally funded healthcare program for mostly low income individuals, all comes out of our you know tax bills, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's been an analysis so far on what you know how much of a financial impact COVID has, has had. But it's important to think about the kind of chronic conditions that. You know, probably rack up lots of expenses with Medicaid. I'm thinking about heart disease, diabetes, you know, uh, diseases that are always around us and always affecting lots and lots of people taking lives each year. Um, So it will be interesting to watch, you know, what kind of impact uh, COVID-19 has down the road. I spoke to Dr. Harry Hyman from uh, Georgia State yesterday in terms of public policy lessons here to be learned as relates to this pandemic. And again, he, as everyone talks about the issue of equity. Hmm. equity, equity moving forward and all of this. You've talked to so many people, you know, you can ask them, well, what is the solution? And everyone says pretty much the same thing. We have to do this. But the reality is the execution in terms of closing these disparity gaps within racial and ethnic groups as it relates to healthcare in general, overall. Yeah. And, and I've had some interesting conversations. You know, we just recently um, hit the 40th anniversary of the first, uh, you know, real documented cases of, of HIV in this country. And mm-hmm. so I took the opportunity to talk with a few um, local real experts in the field. Um, they, they both kind of made the comparison between HIV and COVID-19. Mm-hmm. There are some parts of the country that have really gotten HIV under control. Um, the South is not one of them. Um, you know, this part of the country still sees very high rates of infection compared to other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And they kind of drew comparisons between that and COVID-19. You know, we see low rates of vaccination here. Um, and they expressed concern that we're going to start to see these kind of two countries with COVID-19, like we've seen with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and really what that all gets back to, and um, you know, from, from, from their perspective, are these bigger systemic issues um, that make it harder for certain populations to get access to care, to get access to healthy food. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all tied up together. By the way, I believe National HIV Testing Day is this coming Sunday. Oh, well, look at that. Okay, look <laughs> at that. Uh, Sam, when we think back to, my goodness, last March, March 14th. And I don't know if they came to you and said, Sam, you're going to be covering this. <laughs> what do you make, man, how far we've come? I mean, I, I, I um, it's, you know, I think everyone remembers that Thursday, what, that the NBA shut down is the first day that we all realized. And I think that was also the day that we found out Tom Hanks was sick. Mm-hmm. It's a real hard day for all of us. Um, you know, at that point, I'd already been covering this for a month, right? So I was the person at dinner parties in late February, early March, who was, you know, Uh, just pretty much saying, hey, this is going to be serious. We need to pay attention here. Um, You know, I I think looking back on the last year, it's just remarkable how many lives have been lost, right? I think we just here in the country passed the 600,000 mark um, that we know of, right? Mm -hmm. Those are are only the the ones that we found, and certainly there are more. Um, So I think, you know, there are a lot of I've had a lot of conversations with folks over the last year about whether that number needed to be that high. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, my hope is looking towards the next pandemic and there will be one. We, we do learn some lessons and try to reduce the burden um, that, you know, an infectious disease can have on so many people's lives. And, you know, here on Closer Look, we used to give a daily account of the coronavirus numbers. And and I remember someone emailing me saying, why are you doing this? Why are you giving us these updates? And you look back to even then when Governor Kemp was talking about we have 60 confirmed cases March 14th, 2020. Well, right now we're right about 901,000 cases of confirmed cases and confirmed deaths is, is over 18,000, Sam. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I think you know we we have seen the trends move in really positive directions as vaccines have become more available, um, and you know one can only hope that things keep moving in a positive direction. But I think that there is concern that especially in parts of the country where vaccination rates are low, all that positive progress not necessarily would be totally erased, mm -hmm. um, but that you know we could take you know three steps forward, one step back. Um, your thoughts on this Delta variant? Dr. Fauci says that we've got the vaccines that can that are effective, so perhaps another variant is on the way soon. Yeah, and I, I got from uh, the Department of Public Health today, there are fewer than 30 confirmed cases in the state, um, but federal officials said earlier this week that there are some regions of the country where it makes up half the cases, right? Already. Yes, and it's doubled uh, its prevalence in the U.S. in the last few weeks. So mm. it's here. It's just a question of, you know, if enough people are vaccinated, maybe it can't take a foothold, but if enough people are not vaccinated, maybe it will have a better chance to. WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead and of course host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program that you heard. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, you can find their entire program online at wabe.org slash closer look and of course closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast subscribe to wherever you like sam i really appreciate it y'all stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta's choice for npr thanks to all the listeners all the healthcare workers who came in we can't thank you enough atlanta's choice for npr i'm rose scott Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.